Well, over the next uh, six or seven weeks, we are going to step away from our study in Thessalonians to take a, a look at a series of messages that I'm simply calling What Matters. They are really an attempt to refocus our minds on the important issues of our calling as believers and our calling corporately as a church, touching really on a broad range of subjects, talking about prayer and and uh, mission and leadership and all of those things. But today I want to begin with perhaps the most basic one of all, which is the gospel. And so we want to talk about gospel matters. If we're going to talk about what matters, we might as well begin there and say gospel matters. These are not great times, we might say, for the church or for the gospel in general in America. Anyone who's paying attention knows the trends quite well. Numerous studies have documented an overall decline in church attendance in dramatic fashion. While a few megachurches may grow in their ranks, the overall participation in church on Sunday morning has dropped from about 50% in the middle of last century down to around 17%. In recent studies, and it declines every year, it seems. Thousands of pages have been written with numerous suggestions about what might stem the tide, but few people really get at the issue at hand. It is the overall unbelief that has crept in to our society, and if people are really honest, has crept into our churches. Society is becoming increasingly secular, and now... So are our churches. There's a prominent sociologist, Peter Berger, who articulated this in uh, how it has manifested itself. He noted how secularism overtook Europe and, and permeated every corner of society there, eroding, eroding even the old line institutions of the church, and eventually even made its way to America and had similar effect on our universities and our colleges and on, we might even say, the privileged and influential institutions of our own society. But people always noted through the years how in spite of this growing secularism around us, America seemed to hold on to a religious commitment in a surprising way. But what Peter Berger points out is that it really was all a mirage. What was happening around us over the last 50 years is not that America was maintaining its religious commitment in the face of secularism. It is that the church was becoming subtly secular from the inside out with merely a facade of religion. Whereas in Europe or even the university campuses of America, all outward display of religion was basically banished or, or disappeared. In the grassroots context of America, the appearance of religion remained, but it had been transformed, according to Berger, into a non-cognitive commitment on the part of people. People continued to profess their faith in God, but their profession was devoid of any kind of moral commitment or moral authority or cognitive content. From the outside looking in, America didn't appear to be secularized at the same rate as Europe, but in reality there was less and less substance 
to what people were professing in their faith. By and large, Christians have tended to be late in recognizing these trends, late to recognize even what is going on around them. Church attendance has been certainly on the decline, but even more uh, terrifying, you might say, than that is that even those who still continue to attend, they tend to believe less and less in the authority and the adequacy of the Bible. They put on a religious facade, they take their religious commitment and sort of put it, if you will, into a box not to be opened except on Sunday or maybe in some crisis of emergency and religious belief and religious commitment is provisional or optional, maybe we might even say. Attitudes towards the Bible shifted. People no longer wanted to hear the Bible as God's word to man, but they simply wanted to hear the Bible as man's word about God. They tended to think that it overall was probably true and in places, but it certainly can't be thought of as necessarily authoritative for all of life. If you were to ask them, they would probably tell you that the average churchgoer these days, that the Bible is inspired. They might even say it is inerrant, but if you were to ask them, is the Bible adequate for guiding your life and its most critical issues, they would likely say no. Worldliness had overtaken the church. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a kind of behavior. In previous generations, worldliness might have been thought about as uh, carousing or drunkenness or even sexual immorality. But when I say worldliness, what I'm talking about is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. When he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He makes it clear that what he's talking about is a mental thing, a way of thinking, or we might even say a worldview. That is the essence of worldliness. It's a worldview that assumes that the visible, the temporal, and the material are all that really matter. If it is not visible, material, and temporal, it is not real. That might summarize secularism. In fact, the whole way that people think about real has shifted. They tend to think of things as not being real unless they are somehow spontaneous or new. If it's too predictable, if it's too planned, it is not thought of as original and therefore not thought of as real. Just sort of an imitation a facade. And so it seems that there is in the church a response to this. Rather than letting society creep, uh, seep, we might say, down into just rank secularism, there has been an attempt to capture those who might slide away from the church by presenting them what they want. Try, trying always to present them with the new or the novel. Trying to always present them with some new experience. Something spontaneous. It was deemed most important to make sure that people are not bored as they attend churches. 
And behind it all is a less biblical worldview and a more temporal and secular understanding that they're catering to. The traditional message of the gospel has been increasingly displaced for experiences of spontaneity and pleasure. Churches perceive this subtle shift and slowly diminish the gospel. The goal of preaching used to be present people with that message, bringing them face to face with a transcendent God, a God who isn't seen, uh, to challenge the notion that what you see and experience is all that exists. The goal of preaching used to be to tell people the truest reality is not what you can see, it is what exists outside of your immediate experience. Now it seems to be to give them some, some experience that they can take home with them. Preaching used to tell people that there's a God in heaven who's your maker, He'll be your judge, and you've offended Him with your sin, and you stand under His wrath. And unless you repent and believe, you faced eternal destruction in hell. But if you do repent, He will save you, and He's made a way for your salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the truest reality that you'll ever hear. More real than what you see, more real than what you hear around you in the world every day. But that message maybe perhaps was thought of as impractical, too dull, not really accomplishing what it needed to accomplish. Uh, They recognized, that is, church leaders recognized, that more and more people began to hear that and think that what this is, this is church, but what is outside of this on the rest of the week is the real world. And they began to make those sort of dichotomies and and differences. And so uh, people understood that, uh, church leaders understood that, and what they did is they began to accommodate themselves and their message more and more to the message of the world. A passion for truth and clarity of the gospel was replaced with a passion for social issues. People began to rally more and more about that. And why not? Because if you can uh, do all of that and it still feels religious, then you can still attract a crowd, right? So if the world's main concern is AIDS relief, let's make it the main concern of the church. If the world's main concern is feeding the hungry, let's make it the main concern of the church. If it is sex trafficking, let's, la- let's make that the main concern of the church. If it is feminism, if it is the environment, let's make that one of our concerns as well. And those things take more and more center stage. Pulpit slowly shifted away from the preaching of the gospel to those issues, or, on the other hand, they shifted towards pragmatism, a focus of preaching that was away from God and toward man. Whereas preachers used to understand God as the one who dictated the message, now there's more interest in letting the people and their perceived needs establish the message. Audiences now come to hear how to overcome fear and failure and depression or how to have a better self-image or how to influence people or how even to be a hero or whatever. But it's all oriented towards them. And the historic message or the need for salvation from God's wrath and to be made right with an offended God have all but disappeared. 
The shift really has been subtle. You wouldn't maybe have seen it on a week to week or maybe even sometimes a year to year basis. Because in many cases, churches are sometimes trying to bridge multiple generations and appease numerous people. But the shift has moved steadily in a downward trajectory away from God, away from His Word, and toward man and his felt needs. In the absence of confidence and certainty and doctrinal clarity, church has become worldly at its core. Peter Berger actually predicted this. He actually suggested, long before it ever happened, that those few remaining Americans who attend church only remain religious on the outside, but they were adopting essentially a secular view on the inside. And that when they are met with cultural opposition to the Christian message, they would quickly give way to this secular agenda. It's exactly what we have seen happening. We have all been struck by how the cultural winds have picked up speed in recent years, shocked at how things change. Even secular minds have admitted that they are surprised at the speed with which their agenda is making headway. You take just same-sex marriage, for example, and you go from 2006 to 2016, and you have an almost total flip where in 2006, one-third of Americans supported the idea of same-sex marriage. By the time you get to 2016, only one-third of Americans opposed it. It's been a massive shift in the cultural attitudes. When the Supreme Court mandated the legalization of same-sex marriage, the most shocking response was probably from megachurch pastors who came out in support of the idea. They know their congregations, those who attend their prominent churches, have proven themselves happy to jettison their moral judgments, whether it is same-sex attraction or or whether it is gender roles or whatever it is, they have been happy to jettison them in order to hold on to their social capital in the world. The ground has shifted. Al Mohler says, In the past, those who listened to gospel preaching, Bible preaching, who held to a kind of biblical worldview or biblical morality, they received social capital. But today, for you to sit in a church like this and listen to gospel preaching, it actually costs you social capital. You actually are looked at worse for such a thing. So people don't really want that anymore. They really don't want that kind of offensive message and that kind of narrow view of biblical authority or a biblical worldview. The majority of churches have ultimately concluded Not only is that not popular, it just doesn't work. They feared this secularization and they felt like the only way to stem the tide was to embrace it. They have replaced the old ways with the world's methods. And they have attempted to accommodate the message of the world as much as they can. Well, I'm here to declare that the past 35 years 
of the church growth movement have proven that the world's methods and the world's message is even worse at stemming the tide of secularism than the old gospel. The past 10 years, I think, particularly have proven that with clarity. As Richard Phillips says, there's a downward gravitational pull of the world's demands once you begin to accommodate them. An unstoppable descent into unbelief once the absolute authority of God's Word is set aside and cultural accommodation begins. Certain techniques have proven to gather crowds, but they've done nothing really to solidify the gospel in society. What's really needed, what's always been needed, is a recommitment to the clear proclamation of the gospel, not an accommodation to worldly mindedness, but a confrontation of it, a presentation of the message of God, His wrath, and His salvation through His Son. In the decline of Europe into its secular state, the issue was not an overconfidence in the message of the gospel. It was the message of the gospel that had been slowly eroded from the inside out by liberalism in its theological institutions. The issue in America has not been an overconfidence in the message of the gospel that led to secularism. It has been a slow erosion of the message through worldly pragmatism and socialization within the church. What we need then is a church, or I would say, should say within the church, what we need is an awareness of how increasingly difficult it will be to remain committed to this message. Uh, an, ever, an ever heightened sense of disgust with biblical authority, with biblical morality, and with anything that smacks of transcendence outside of what the real, at least in the eyes of secularism, the visible, material, immediate world is. And because of that, not only do we need an awareness of what's going on around us, we need an ever-renewed commitment to preach this message of God. Not because it works, Not because we have even a promise that our nation will be turned around, but because it is God's message. Because it's His message to us, determined by Him, entrusted to us as a stewardship. Our job is simply to preach it. As you remember, in the past few weeks, I I took pains to give the sort of historical situation of Paul's second missionary journey from Thessalonica to Berea, down to Athens, those cities which were a particularly difficult pathway for Paul. It could hardly have been called triumphant. He was chased out of every city or mocked and scoffed at all along the way. If Paul had gauged his message according to what was working, he surely would have abandoned the message of the gospel. But instead, he remained committed to it and until the time he reached even the city of Corinth... After leaving Athens, he went to Corinth and he describes his arrival there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul, we might say, was a broken man after so much turmoil and so much seeming outward failure in all of his preaching in all of those cities. He was shaken, he was rattled over everything that had happened to him. He says he was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But he also says he never abandoned the message. He also says that he decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There was no need to embellish it. There was no need to enhance it. There was no need to accommodate it to the world around him. Nothing but the simple message of the gospel. And he stands really as a positive example to us of an unwavering commitment to that message, even in the face of mockery and rejection or whatever it might be. And so this morning, what I want to do in what little time we have really remaining is to reinforce, if you will, that commitment for us as we look out not only across the the months ahead of us in 2018, but whatever the Lord would have for us in the years to come, to reinforce that commitment in our hearts so that we would be able to stand with the Apostle Paul and say, look, even if it's in fear and in trembling and in weakness, that we will decide to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want to do it this morning, not so much from a from a positive example, but if you will, from a negative one, from not an unwavering commitment, but from a very wavering one. And it is seen for us in the book of Galatians chapter 1. This is one of the earliest churches where Paul had ministered and where he had preached. And yet, after he had preached and established the church there, now just a few years later, he receives word that they were beginning to capitulate already on the clarity and simplicity of the message that he gave to them. And so he pins this letter that, for the most part, uh, bypasses the casual greetings that he has in all of his other letters and abruptly introduces his topic in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. We don't have time really to do a detailed exposition of every part of this, but we can make five quick observations that reinforce, if you will, the call on us to guard the gospel faithfully. And the first one is this, in verse 6, we just take note of Paul's dismay over those who deserted the gospel. His dismay over their desertion 
of the gospel. He says he was astonished. Thalmazo, it's a word for wonderment. In fact, it's a word that's often used of people who are responding to the miracles of Christ. That kind of amazement. He was dumbfounded, we might say. Absolutely amazed and shocked that they would so quickly, he says, which doesn't necessarily refer to the time. It's a word that really talks about the ease, how easily they have turned away from it, almost without much of a fight. This is something Paul could not fathom. It was contrary to everything he expected, especially since God had worked among them the way he had worked among them through that very preaching of the gospel. For Paul, the gospel was the most glorious thing that was ever beheld. It was was the gospel, he refers to it in 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ. Its message captivated his mind and, and, and drew him in continually with the love of Christ. And so to abandon and to desert the gospel for anything else for him was absolutely astounding. And, and he makes it clear it was not only deserting the message, he says, you were deserting Christ Because to do this is really to turn away from all affection for the one who saved you the way he has saved you. Because the understanding of the gospel begins with an understanding of Christ. Understanding the gospel begins with the understanding of his life, how he was born in this world as God in human flesh and lived a life that was 100% worthy of God's favor because he had no sin. And yet he took the only worthy life that's ever been lived on this earth and sacrificed it to redeem such unworthy people. And so to abandon that message is to abandon Christ because it's all built on him. It's all built on his absolute perfection His absolute sufficiency. His absolute authority even. You begin to alter the gospel, you detract from that. You detract from Him. You begin to diminish the gospel, you necessarily diminish Him. Paul says, look, you're turning away to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That, in verse 7, sort of moves us to a second observation. We take note not only of Paul's dismay over their desertion, but also, in verse 7, the distortion by false teachers. This is also reinforcing our need to stand firm for the gospel. It's the reality and the recognition That there are always those, there always have been and there always will be, who want to replace the gospel of Christ. There's a constant drumbeat for that. And yet Paul wants these Galatians to understand, just as he wants us to understand, that there is only one gospel. And it is the gospel that he preached to them. Now these Thessalonians had come to believe that they could adapt that to other 
systems of belief or at least accommodate that to other systems of belief without ever compromising that real gospel. And without getting into too much detail, what was happening in Galatians was that people had come from Israel, they'd come from Jerusalem, and had professed to believe in the same Christ as the Galatians believed in, and professed to believe in the same gospel they believed in, but were telling them that the gospel alone was insufficient. It wasn't going to do the trick either to save people or to sanctify people. In fact, we read about it in in Acts 15. We read that men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers in Galatia that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is a one-verse summary of their teaching. And it's also a one-verse summary of their distortion. They were basically taking the gospel of Christ and adding to it these other things. Advocating circumcision. In other cases, you go through the book of Galatians, you find out they were advocating other laws as well. Ceremonies and keeping a Sabbath days and all those other things. They were basically saying, look, this is how you achieve standing before God. And not to have these things is really not to answer the main questions. It is really not to be sufficient. That's important to know. This is not an outright denial of Jesus Christ. They didn't come denying Jesus Christ. That would have been easy and simple to see. They simply came suggesting that Christ was not enough. That the message Paul preached was not enough. That his sacrifice was insufficient. Very subtle changes. And yet even with the subtle changes, Paul says... It's another gospel. You have, you have attached things to it, barnacles, if you will, of whatever man-made religion, whatever worldly thought, whatever false teaching might be there, and it has become something other than the true gospel. John MacArthur says, the most destructive dangers to the church have never been atheism, pagan religions or cults that openly deny Scripture, but rather supposedly Christian movements that accept so much biblical truth that their unscriptural doctrines seem relatively insignificant and harmless. But a single drop of poison in a large container makes all the water lethal. Paul understood this. He understood that they had, what they were doing might have been, uh, they thought with sincerity, enhancing the gospel, helping the gospel maybe, even, even going deeper in the gospel. But Paul understood exactly what it was. It was replacing the gospel with some other message than its real message. He also was no dummy. He knew people would respond to him by suggesting that he is simply a victim of perspectivalism. Well, Paul's problem is he just can't adjust with, with uh, different people's views. He can't get along with others. It either has to be his way or no other way. I mean, he, he just is having a, a difficult time endorsing something else because it isn't his way. And so after mentioning his dismay and after talking about how these false teachers distort the gospel... He also 
points out the, the definition or the designation of a singular source of this gospel. He says, look, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, this is really fascinating from the Apostle Paul. Really a profound conviction in the message that he's preached, a, confound, a profound conviction in the authority of what he preached. Not just the messenger, not really even his credentials, because the criteria of the truth, Paul says, was even outside of himself. He says, look, even if I come and preach a different message, it doesn't change anything. If anyone comes and preaches something other than what was preached to you at the beginning, he's to be accursed. Paul couldn't put it in stronger terms. I delivered to you a message that didn't arise from myself or from any other human source. In fact, that's what the bulk of the next, uh, the first two chapters of Galatians are all about. Paul is writing, we might say, apologetically to explain in thorough detail how this message did not arise from him. He was, he was fanatical to understand the message that God gave and to deliver it as God gave it and to have in it no admixture of anything from himself. He preached to them faithfully. And if anyone deviates from that, Paul says, he's to be accursed. That truth, not Paul himself, that truth, not the preacher, that truth, not the culture, that truth, not the felt needs of the people, that truth becomes the standard. It's the unbreakable standard of the truth by which they are to measure every other truth. It's a standard that supersedes even those who deliver the message. The authority of Scripture supersedes, we might say, those who even wrote the Scripture. That's a profound conviction, if you will, on the divine origin of this message. A profound conviction on the authority of the message and the diminished role of the messenger. In fact, Paul says, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you some other gospel, some other message, if it were to come by vision, if it were to come by, by some epiphany, if it were to come by some claim to miracle, if it were to claim, come by anything, if it were to come any other way, it doesn't matter. This message is the sole authority. One way you can know then, one way you can measure then, whether or not the message that you're preaching is true is to measure it by this. The gospel that Paul first spoke to the Galatians, the gospel that he defends in this very book. And if you contradict that, Paul says you are under the curse. You are under the curse of God. Anathema is the word in Greek. Let him be accursed. It has a long tradition, really, that word. 
in Old Testament literature on what sometimes is called the ban, what would come on someone within the community of Israel who did something that was considered to be profane or blasphemous or unholy. They were placed under the ban, they were cursed, and they were literally cast out of the community, never able to return. It's one of the strongest words that Paul could ever uh, really put on anyone. He says, you are accursed and cursed by God. It really takes us to the fourth observation of, or the fourth observation, I should say, that reinforces to us the need to guard this gospel. Not only Paul's dismay and not only the distortion that comes by false teachers and the the definition from the singular source of the gospel, but you'll notice there at the end of verse 8 and in verse 9, the damnation for those who pervert it. He says, if you... If anyone preaches something other, let him be accursed. And he says again in verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't often say things twice like this. But he does when he wants to drive home a point. And by the way, when he speaks about having said this before, he's not talking about just the previous verse. He's talking about a previous visit, a previous time. In other words, when he was with them, apparently he would often make this point to them so much so that he had confidence he could refer back to it and they would remember it. That he was one who stood in front of them and frequently reminded them of this of this damnation, of this curse, warning them of anyone who would come along and distort the message. It's a reminder to us that God always reserves His most severe judgments for false teachers, for distorters of the gospel, to those who would pervert it, change it, alter it, or whatever it might be, into some other gospel. This is his most severe warning that you'll find anywhere in Scripture, whether it here is here in the book of Galatians at the lips of the Apostle Paul or through the lips of Jesus when he begins to talk about tying a millstone around your neck and throwing yourself into the sea. It's more severe than condemnation for murderers, for sexually perverse people, for swindlers. By far the strongest condemnations are those who pervert and distort the gospel. Because these are people who are dealing with eternal consequences. These are people whose deviation and destruction doesn't last for a moment, doesn't affect just someone's immediate plans or someone's temporal happiness. This affects eternity. And so God... God understands the weight of that and issues, if you will, His strongest condemnations of it, His harshest words against it, because their damage, the damage of their deceit is numbered not just in years but in eternity. And then finally, 
this morning, we took note a fifth observation that reinforces uh, a call on us to guard the gospel faithfully. And that is really in verse 10, the difficulty of preaching it. The difficulty of preaching it. Paul says, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's a lot of ways that you can explain this message from Paul, this this statement in verse 10. It had its immediate context just in the Galatian controversy. Because these people, as Paul will go on to say in Galatians 5 and 6, were doing what they were doing in order to gain approval of those who were around them. They were actually adding to the gospel message their legalistic demands, not because they were wanting to displease people, but because they were wanting to accommodate people. They were, we might say, giving a nod to the world's idea of religion, which Paul refers to in Colossians chapter 2, the elemental principles of the world. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. These were people who were doing what they were doing, not in the name of faithfulness, but in the name of their own standing. Because every religion around them, if it was Judaism or paganism, was built on this same basic concept of morality and earning your religious standing and right before God. And so Paul recognizes that these people were doing this to, 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 to make a boast, as he says in Galatians chapter 5. Boast not only in themselves, but to boast over others who were their disciples. That was their motive and whatever they were doing, but Paul likely has even the words of our Savior behind this, who says to his disciples that they couldn't be a servant of two masters. They had to serve either him or ungodly mammon, ungodly wealth. He told them at another time that they had to deny their closest relationships, their closest affinities, take up their cross and follow him. He wouldn't commit himself to those who even professed to believe in him because he didn't trust what was in man. He remained devoted to the Lord. He understood the constant tug and struggle to want to to bend yourself to the world around you to please those who are around you. And so Paul understood that there was always a challenge whenever you're engaged in gospel ministry, whenever you're engaged in even preaching, there's always a challenge, there's always an allurement to do what is pleasing to men. And Paul simply states it. Look, if I'm trying to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. If that becomes my motivation, if that becomes mixed into whatever I'm doing, I am already on the pathway to destruction. It's an amazing rebuke, really, to modern society people who still believe that somehow they can hold on to the gospel while doing all they can to appeal to the culture around them. How they can share or sell, I should say, to people 
some message of their own self-worth while still proclaiming to them the message of Christ. The gospel doesn't allow for that. There is no room for glory for anyone but God alone. There is no room for anyone to determine the message except for God alone. We're not allowed to accommodate ourselves to the culture around us. We're not allowed to gauge their felt needs. We're not allowed to embrace whatever the secular world's particular agenda is at the time. It may mean that you're displeasing to people. It may mean that you aren't getting their approval any longer. In fact, it will most likely mean that. Jesus says a servant is above his master. The disciple's not above his teacher. If they referred to him in terms of the devil, they will do the same to you. You couldn't have stronger terms calling for a stronger commitment. Not just to any message, not just to a religious feeling message, not to a message of morality and good works, but to the only message that's been entrusted to us. The message, the clear proclamation of the gospel. The message that God is a holy God and He made the world by His own doing, out of His own lips. A world which now has been corrupted by sin and rebelled against its maker. He now stands over it in wrath and in imminent judgment. And were it not for the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ who came to give up His life on the cross, there would be no answer for us but for those who are willing to confess themselves as offenders of God, destined for that kind of wrath, under God's judgment, for those who are willing to repent of their sin and believe the message of Christ, their salvation. Paul says, I decided to know nothing but that message, nothing but Christ, in fear, in trembling, and in weakness, preaching it so that the power of God might be put on display and people's faith might not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Well, more to come in the weeks to come. In fact, our other elders will be involved bringing to us different messages about what matters as we look into the future. What are we really committed to as a church? And we'll look forward to that time together. Let's stand together. As you're standing, some of you may be here today and you've never heard that gospel. You've never been told that you are a sinner, or maybe you've never realized it, never thought about it, you stand under the wrath of God. But if you're here today, and this is the first time you're hearing that, the good news, the gospel news, is that although you're under the wrath of God, you can be saved. We invite you, we encourage you, we would implore you, that before you leave here today, that you would find someone that you know is a child of God, Someone that you know knows this gospel. You see it in their life. And you talk to them. Share with them how lost you know you are. And how you'd like to know God. 
And they would be happy to share with you the gospel of Christ. Father, we're grateful for this gospel. We, uh, we cannot embellish it. We cannot add to it. We only come back to its simplicity this morning. We are reminded in stark terms by the Apostle Paul what we're all about as a church, as a body, the proclamation of this truth. We're thankful for men like Paul who did not turn away from it. We are struck with caution thinking about a church, the churches of Galatia, who did waver in it. And we are humbled and asking you once again that you would grant us your favor and grace that no matter what is happening in society around us, no matter how secular it is becoming, that from the very inside out, from the very core of who we are, the gospel would always be the center. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.